Welcome to Looking for the Ocean, a Pixar podcast where we watch everything Pixar has ever made. That includes movies, tech demos, and more. I'm Mark Young, and with me today is Danny Vincent. And we are pissed, apparently. I'm, very, I'm so excited that today very, is the day we're starting our new format because well, we're coming in here with strange vibes. Apparently, I'm not sure if I'm I'm pissed. I'm more like angry at the world and at existing. So mm-hmm. one of those, some <laughs> one of yeah. those, one of those. It's a wonderful life's type of moves. So I got you. Well, you I already mentioned it a little bit, but we are starting our new format today, and it should be pretty obvious what we're doing. But we're just going to do it. And that'll be it. So, Danny, do you want you or me to just talk about some of the historical background of the film before we get into it? It's it's a Pixar story. It's about Pixar and their story. It covers everything we've covered up to at this point. It is the opposite of a groundbreaker because we've told you everything that this movie will tell you. Outside of maybe some tidbits in the first 25 minutes. It premiered at a film festival. Then it somehow got a theatrical run that was then picked up by stars to just air on TV. Uh, it's directed by Leslie Iwerks, the granddaughter, I believe, of, or maybe great-granddaughter. Let's see. She's the, oh yeah, granddaughter of, uh, Oob of, I think I ever say it. Of Iwerks, yeah, the co-creator of Mickey Mouse and Oswald the Rocky, Lucky Rabbit. This was nominated for an Emmy for Best Nonfiction Special, and yeah, it's a, it's a documentary that covers everything Pixar did up to their acquisition of Disney. And I think neither one of us had watched it before today, right? No, I'd seen it. But this was oh. way back... It was a DVD bonus feature on the Wally DVD. So this was like back 13 or 14-year-old Danny watching the bonus feature on the DVD of Wally. So not really oh, okay. much memory of it. Although I will say the ending portion where it's like, we're running for all their movies we've done so far. That I like remember like, oh my gosh, I've definitely seen this before. So do you do you have any personal history with this film? Nothing, like, special, really, for this film. It's the type of thing where, you know, as a kid, I was saying this when we talked about Monsters, Inc., is the Pixar DVDs were really good. So, my experience with this is just kind of more, like, tied in with all the other bonus features they did, where this is one of the more adult ones, and by that I mean it wasn't like, oh, cool, you get to look at the frames they did, or you get to look at the evolution of a scene. This is just, we're talking about the movies. Ergo, you know, the first 40 minutes or so this was really boring to me as a child but once they hit toy story it's like okay now i'm interested whereas now as an adult i'm like i know all these tidbits they're giving me about all these movies and production i'm more interested on this stuff about the politicking of getting pixar started which we did not really cover on this show because it's all prior to basically them making luxo jr this was really impressive because leslie ewerks has interviews with people like george lucas and steve jobs and Pretty much everybody except for actors. I mean, they do, she does they have do Tom Hanks three. and Tim Allen. And Billy Crystal. Yeah, and Billy Crystal. I don't know. I, I kind of wanted more actor thing. I think my takeaway from this is that it's such like... what's it's The word isn't a puff piece, but it's kind of like the best possible look at this film studio. And I'm not super familiar with Leslie Ewerks' other work. She apparently has done nature documentaries and environmentalist things before. But it was, I, I don't know, I had, a, I had a good time watching this thing because I think the narrative was presented in an interesting way. It's just kind of a Talking Heads documentary with some archival footage. And it does, it does have some interesting behind-the-scenes things from, like, early 
pre-visualizations for The Incredibles and early versions of Toy Story where Woody had a big head and Buzz was really little and it has people narrating over that. But it's kind of a Talking Heads documentary where it's like they use every business cliche to talk about like, oh, it was this little company going up against all the big companies and we he worked himself harder than he ever worked before to complete this thing and that is like the entire film it's an enjoyable time but i think it's weird that we're watching this in the context of everything they've made or for me anyway versus as a dvd bonus feature because i think as a dvd bonus feature you kind of expect it to be a little very polite for me just watching this in the run of all the films we're watching i was like man this sucks well, my thing with the um, Talking Head documentaries is the only one that's worth your time is stop making sense. All right, I, I got the dumb joke out of the way. Let me let me move on. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, you know, I I think this is a perfectly fine documentary for 2007. You know, it's on the Wally DVD. It's clearly already outdated because like who knows what might come next? And it shows a clip of Ratatouille, uh, <laughs> yeah. which is all also when this was released was post Ratatouille anyway. So it's like, who even who even gives a shit, you know? Like, But the whole thing is just, it ends on this really depressing note where it's like, it's going to be so amazing. So we kind of got into this in a Ratatouille episode where it's like, it's so it's going to be so amazing now that Disney's bought Pixar and is ready to fund them. We don't want to lose their vision. And Jay put forth the argument that Pixar does lose their vision very quickly after this, after becoming homogenized in Disney. And of course... They're like, Disney bought Pixar so that way we can have traditional animation alongside CGI animation. It's like, well, no, that lasted two films, and then you guys gave up. (laughs) So, it's just like, this whole thing ends with this whole, like, the future looks very bright for Pixar when you know, in fact, that it does, and animation, it's like, and you know for a fact it does not look particularly bright. And then there's also this whole, this whole element where, you know, like, a lot of these, this is where I was getting into, I was like, I'm coming into this already depressed and angry about other things but this also just made me like very sad if you, if you we want to talk about the movie we can but i think it's more interesting to talk about existential crises um, well, i want to talk a little bit more about the movie no one knows exactly what the movie is but the movie i mean just to okay. say a little bit more about the film it is <laughs> the story of pixar up and from the very beginnings and i actually think they do a pretty good job of talking about like pre-pixar through like just before Ratatouille comes out and it follows this story through the stories of Steve Jobs, Ed Catmull, who is the technical advisor. I don't know if people remember that name, but he keeps coming up as he's the tech guy responsible for all of not, he's not responsible for all, but he's kind of like, he's the tech guy. He's framed as the guy running all of the computer developments. And so it's Steve Jobs, Ed Catmull, and then also John Lasseter, it tells their stories as they interweave through the history of Pixar. So it's like, now we're going to hear about Steve Jobs in like the 90s. And now we're going to double back and here's what Ed Catmull was doing. Apple too. How they, Yeah. <laughs> and then it kind of talks about like... I was like, doing my Duck. Seth Rogen voice from the Steve Jobs movie where he goes, Apple too. <laughs> it's <laughs> Michael Batsman. <laughs> oh, I don't even remember that film. I don't. I, I only think, remember uh, Seth Rogen saying the words "Apple II" a lot because he played Waz. This is. I don't know. It's. This is such. It, if you can imagine like the History Channel documentary in your head that has this story, that's basically how it went. It even starts with like, it traces 
it goes back to like the in the dawn of animation people wanted to give motion to lines and it starts with a zoetrope and then, and then it then goes it, to it, nope it cuts to nope 2022 like goes way ahead of the future and then it keeps going on back to like gertie the yeah. dinosaur crazy i don't know why, why they threw the shot from nope but you know yeah incredibly prescient <laughs> to shout out nope in this documentary but here here's what i want to say that's good about it before the darkness comes is i think it's interesting to hear from steve jobs and i do think that hearing the business side of this thing even though we know more context and we know that like some of this didn't really pan out it's interesting to hear about how steve jobs made it so that they became partners with disney after almost leaving disney and then they also went public and made a ton of money doing that like i don't think that would have come up in our discussions it's really interesting to hear steve jobs you know complicated dude but a compelling talker about business so i thought I, that was neat i agree now yeah. i'm gonna talk about steve jobs in my point this is i don't know how long it's gonna last and maybe maybe if we have time afterwards i can get back to the movie proper but what really stood we have out to, to get this out no, this will no, Mark. This trust me. What I'm going to say no, is no. I'm, I'm saying this about you. I'm sorry. Relevant to the I'm, film, yeah, is yeah. the moment that really stuck out to me, and what made me view the rest of the documentary through its lens is near the beginning where they show you this video clip of like a month or so, or maybe it's a year after John Lasser starts working at Disney, and the guy he's talking to goes like, "Hey, this is coming to you from the past." And I was just like, damn, yes, this is, a, it's a documentary, so this is all documenting the past, and Joe Ramp and Steve Jobs are dead, and by the time this movie comes out, Joe Ramp is already dead, and you know what, we see John Laster's wife talk about how he's a great family man, and we know for a fact that he, you know, eventually was, you know, harassing other women behind his wife's back, and it's just like, this entire thing is like, and then, as I already said, you know, at the end, it's like, we're, traditional animation is going to be around forever, and Pixar is going to keep being great, a universally great studio. And it's all like, all these people are frozen in time, and we are just watching their dreams frozen there, and all of them are going to be dead someday. <laughs> and this will wow. exist 20 years down the road, 200 years down the road, 20 years down the road is nothing. <laughs> it's already been existing for about 15 years, so the, uh, 20 years is nothing. 200 years really down the road. It really could exist because now Wally is on the Criterion Collection and has this with it, so now people will always have this documentary. Yeah, so like 200 years down the road, this will be the d document of the Pixar story. Now, there probably will be more ones down the road, but this is the first one. And just that to me is, and this will always be the one that has like the Steve Jobs interview, the Joe Ramft interviews. And it's just like, damn. And it's not that like, it, I don't, this might sound like I'm leading to like a, oh, and it's really a bummer that this is the movie that gets all that stuff. But it's not that. It's just sad that everyone dies. <laughs> like that, that, that was my takeaway from this entire thing is, you know, yeah. we get to see. Like, these people who, in our eyes, growing up, like, I see Pete Doctor today, I'm like, oh, yeah, there's Pete Doctor. And here, he's like, he's a child. And I understand that, like, he is a child here. He's, they're, they're, like, my age. And I'm just like, this is, this is, like, harrowing stuff to me. Where it's like, these people are now old. And this was something I watched as a kid where they were cool adults that I wanted to be, like, where they dedicated five minutes of their documentary showing off how cool it was, their place of work. And now, mm -hmm. here we are. And this, this, this reality is gone now, and we will never be back to 2007 or 1995. And that's what a documentary is. You know, it documents 
And I'm reminded of, because I, I feel like now might be the time to bring up my most famous writing on Pixar, I'd say. Because during mm-hmm. our Cocoa episode, we're going to be talking about so much other bullshit that me talking about film criticism in college isn't going to work. It's, I wrote my paper on Cocoa in college that like got like the professor pushed it to be read on the radio about the Roland Barthes idea of camera lucida, which is that photo photographs are frozen moments in time that are dead. And they are visions of dead people, dead moments in the past. And my argument was, is that in Coco, you know, like, yes, obviously that's a big part of the movie because, you know, there's the, there's the picture, you know, they always use, but also mm-hmm. in Coco, the, the thing that causes all the reveals in that movie are like projected images of cinema so it's like, well, in this this movie, so it, it posits that these are reanimated dead moments being shown to you on film. That, But it's like, so then what is true life? And I argue, you know, it's, I, I don't have it open for me, but I, I argue that it's like, it's music. Because obviously that's what Coco is about, is music. And music is something that will always be alive and always be reanimated in a way that isn't reanimating a dead moment. Because someone mm. will interpret it a different way no matter what. All that yeah. said is just, you know, I was watching this, I'm like, you know, this is, like, something where maybe someone who, like, you know, not that this is accurate, because I don't know Steve Jobs' life, but, like, let's say Steve Jobs, like, had a son that we didn't know about, and he'd be, like, watching this movie, and he'd be like, that's my dad there, who I'll never meet. <laughs> or, like, same with, like, Joe Ramped. Or, like, maybe John Lasseter's kids, who, you know, his he is going through family trouble. It's like, this is our dad before the family trouble. Is this video of him in a documentary. And it's like... Mm-hmm damn like every moment doesn't last and we are all doomed for time to progress on us <laughs> that was my takeaway from the pixar story <laughs> <laughs> i told you i had like a big existential thought on it <laughs> and that was no, it. <laughs> i mean well first of all steve jobs has four children <laughs> Well, I know he has so. a daughter who's in the movie where Steve where Severus like Apple do <laughs> but <laughs> Um Damn. Yeah. No, I mean I take away from the like... movie. It's just everything is it's just, this is too innocent. These are these people are innocent and they don't know how terrible things are going to get. <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> I'm I'm like it's it's funny that you're I can we talk about the day you're having? Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, well, I'm not going to talk in length about it, but, like, getting your insurance hiked up may- yeah. maybe is putting a dark cloud on your day. No, no, because I had all these thoughts before that. I actually had all these thoughts while watching the film. <laughs> <laughs> and I told you before, and I was going to mention, I saw, um, I went to an advanced screening the other day of the new Kelly Rockcar film showing up, and there were points of that movie in my Letterbox review. I, I put it up. Honestly, right before we recorded, and it's... I don't think the movie is intending to be very sad entirely. Like, I think it's supposed... It is, it's marketed as a comedy. So, what, you're, talking about, you're talking about Kelly Records' film or Pixar? Yeah. Showing up, showing up. Okay. It's not supposed to be, like, this sad movie. I don't even think it's supposed to be, like, this bittersweet movie. I think it's supposed to be Kelly Records' take on, like, an artsy comedy. And there were just moments of it where I just felt this immense sorrow. <laughs> because Michelle Williams is playing, like someone who works at an art school under her mom and you know it's michelle williams age and she's just like i just want time i don't have time to do my show i don't have time to do anything i'm like damn michelle williams is like 15 years older than me in this movie and her life is shitty and she's she's at the place where i want to be in 15 years (laughs) it's just like one of those things where i'm like damn things just never will get better right that 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 was what i I was bringing into the pixar story (laughs) 
<laughs> and then I watched the well, Pixar story where it's like these guys are in their 30s and they're so successful. See, I'm like having a breakdown on Mike right now. I think these guys are in their 30s and they're so successful. And now I am 27 at work doing bullshit. <laughs> and I have my well, insurance rates are going up. Like- they also went to Cal Arts, and they mentioned at the beginning that John Lasseter was trained in like the first Disney animation program that they had, and that was the first time anyone ever like had access to that. I don't think you can compare yourself to these guys who had had so many things available to them, you know. And it all might be random, you know. I don't know if I don't really know about John Lasseter's family life and. It's not super important for our podcast, but I don't. I don't think you can compare yourself totally to. I mean, you say these that, but we guys. compare people to. We care. We compare ourselves to people in every movie we see, or any story we see. It's just the human condition. Not that, that, just well, yeah. so that literally was like an Aaron Sorkin line. I just said. <laughs> <laughs> um. Well, yeah, but not I for think, nothing. I don't know. It's it's funny because. So that's what you watched today, right? Today, before I got on, I watched the Pixar story, then I was doing some work, and then when I had dinner, I watched Goodfellas. And few things bring me more more joy and zest for life than watching Goodfellas. And part of it was like, I knew I was in kind of a funky mood, because I came out of the Pixar story, kind of where you are, with like, man, these people don't know how good they have it, which... There's no reason for them to, but like, I don't know. For me, I've never seen Brave. I don't know if Pixar has ever made a bad film. Like, I'm sure they have, but like, I haven't seen it. We've talked about a lot of things that are like disappointing. Can we come on the Cars 2 episode and go like, Danny, you dumb. (laughs) This one was bad. That's not going on. (laughs) I don't don't think that's... I think I'm going to have a good time at Cars 2. But I just think that like, it's so temporary, you know? And... We have to we have to remember that these things are all these are all just moments, and I think things can like catch us off guard and put us in a funk, you know. But yeah, but then, again, I, w- I want to point out to you again, all the thoughts I said at you were basically my thoughts at noon this morning, <laughs> this afternoon. Which and then you didn't watch Goodfellas. I'm not I'm not I'm not saying. Well, it's, Goodfellas but, is like you know Ray Liotta just died too. It's like everyone dies. <laughs> It's one of those things. That was my big well, takeaway from the Pixar story. Was like all these people. Like this is coming at the time where you know, like Tim Allen is still like viewed as like this paragon of great, like great acting. Where they say like, yeah, me and Tom, we went to see the movie. And we both started cry- crying, and it's like over this. Ca- I think it's the other way. Around. I think Tom Hanks tells that story, but it's like you know, like that's not really a story to me. That Tom, Tim Allen, like, like that's not. You know what I mean? It's like these these people are talking about this. It's also something where it's like you know it's a documentary from 2007 so all these takes they give out to us are takes we've heard before not necessarily like the stories of the bts but like them saying like oh we cried our eyes out of jesse's song i'm like yeah of course he fucking did right (laughs) like why Um, wouldn't you (laughs) so you feel like i don't know you just you don't feel like the same joy for that now no i mean like it's something where you know you watch you watch the Pixar story and you go like all all this is as you said it's sanitized all of it is 
propaganda for me to like this cup. Like, you know, they spend five minutes on saying, like, look at how great our studio is. Wouldn't it be so nice to work here? We can fly jets around in the main office space. What we know now, not necessarily in 2007, but eventually that becomes, like, a massive hub of, like, sexual harassment from John Lasseter. So it's like, oh, yeah, it's so great to go work here. And it's like this whole thing. I remember Julius told me once. I don't know if this was a documentary that made them thankless, but Julius was like, you know, this was when the John Lasseter news broke was that the dream growing up has always been had always been to go work at Pixar in their sound department. And now it's like, well, fuck. They wouldn't have cared there because I'm not a white man. Um, not me, Julius. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, you know? Yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. just like, yeah, it's like, you know, all this is like a beautiful piece of like, look at how great Pixar is. And this podcast is about how great Pixar is. And I do think Pixar is, one, a great cultural institute that we must acknowledge and praise often but often you know you've seen me do we've talked about toy story we've talked about toy story too i do a lot to diminish john lasseter's accomplishments with those movies because <laughs> i feel mm. weird giving him the credit <laughs> well i don't think you can like not give him the credit for things that he did you know that's just well i mean i know i know i can but works. i have that's my point is like i've done this so i can talk about these things and compartmentalize them and this thing is like Look at us in 2007. Look at uh, Steve Jobs being so proud yeah. of us. Steve like Jobs. It in your face. Yeah, and it's also like, damn, you know what? I don't remember exactly. I think Steve Jobs, didn't he die in like 2014, 2013, 2012? Yeah. Know. He looks so young in this. That's the thing to me, too. That, must, that messed me up. I was like, oh, damn, you know? It's one of those things where it's like, um, actually, to go back to my Kelly Reichardt story, which will then get the yeah, He died thing. in 2011. Okay, so he died when I was yeah. in high school. So he dies like four years after this. That's... But anyway, to bring the... Mm -hmm. This is about it, but I'm also going to tell the Kelly Reichardt story I said I was going to tell you on off mic, which is when Mark... Okay. Before we recorded, I told Mark I went to showing up the man's screen. I was like, oh, I've seen a couple others. I've seen Wendy and Lucy, which I watched when I got the tickets to the screening because I wanted to see one of the Michelle Williams collaborations. And then I saw First Cow. Now, before I saw First Cow, um, I attempted to watch... Um, I can tell you the exact date I attempted to watch Meek's Cutoff. Do you know the story? <laughs> I bring no. up you. Uh, Julius invited me over with the roommate Gene on August 28th, 2020 to watch Meek's Cutoff and then watch First Cow probably right after. Or maybe, maybe we're going to do First Cow another day. I don't exactly remember. Um, we get 15 minutes in the movie until Gene needs to go to the bathroom. And when we're it's like, all right, pause the movie. We're going to check out our phones. And I get a text that says... Chadwick Boseman died? Question mark? I'm like, no fucking way, oh. right? And then, yeah. and then it, it's every like you know, it's everywhere immediately, and it's just like what? So we just sit there basically in silence for 30 minutes until Julius puts on his intro scene in Civil War, and I just start bawling my eyes out there. Mm -hmm. And it's just like that. That's my takeaway here from seeing Steve Jobs is like, damn, this is like the oldest I'm gonna see him get where he's healthy. And just like the yeah. Chadwick Boseman, it's like, fuck, these people never go old. <laughs> that, 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 this is my takeaway from the Pixar story. <laughs> a film like this, which really does not seem to have a purpose beyond making Pixar look good, it's very easy to get very sour about it. What got me here, though, was the opening, where they go like, hey, this is probably, you're watching this, like, this is a clip from, uh, from the past. And I was like, damn, it is. All this is. All of this, yeah. 
All of this is lost in time like tears and rain, except that it's not because it's going to be on the Criterion release of this in 8K in 40 years. <laughs> I was amazed by how many interviews they had, but every interview they have is like they shoot it the same way, like you're in someone's living room. And yeah, I mean, actually you're usually in someone's living room, but there's like a fire going, and it's, I don't, I don't like shooting things like their sunset because sunsets are sad to me. And I, I think I, that was doing something to me as I watched the film too. Anytime you can film something with a yellow light or anything like that, it, it makes me think that like the end is near. So <laughs> the end was yeah. near. These people were talking about how great the buyout's going to be. I hate to be harping on this point, but this is, I'm again, Totally honest. This is my takeaway from the movie. And to, before I got all the bad news, I, I got believe from you. other things. I believe you. But it's just like, you know, it's like, oh, it's so nice. We figured out a bug's life. We beat the second film course. And now in retrospect, most people are like, well, no, because a bug's life. And, and I know we have fans of a bug's life here. People who listen to this podcast love a bug's life. But I think most people would say a bug's life is bottom six or seven Pixar, which granted, when this comes out, that's not a bad place to be, you know? But now it's like, damn, like, and it's just all these people are talking about these things where it's like, yeah, we really we really made the right decision here. And it's like, but you, or, or you know, I think they say with Toy Story, it's like, we definitely want to, like, go back to these characters when, like, I, I can't remember the exact line, but there was one line that one of them said, and I just immediately thought, like, yeah, but you're doing a fifth one now, you know? It's just like... <laughs> One yeah. of those things where it's like these stories will outlive you if you let them outlive you. That, that I, I had so, I, I had only negative thoughts while watching this, and none of them had anything to do with what I was being shown. They just had to do with how I, what I know follows this. Yeah. Do you remember like when you watched it? Were you just watching it for the first time on the Wally DVD? I mean, I don't remember what it was like. Again, I think. My dad was probably watching it because my dad, you know, we bought these DVDs. My dad has always been like a junkie for these things. And mm -hmm. it's like, you know, I probably walked in when they were talking about Because I remembered like the stuff about Nemo. And I think I remember like seeing the Black Friday reel. And I think that all, I think all that stuff comes from here. And yeah. And it's just like, in a way, it's like, oh, Danny, this, this, I said this earlier, everything in this thing, this, basically, everything I mentioned from Toy Story onward is something I've mentioned in this podcast who like who cares like I don't like, you know it's just like it's just yeah it, and it's like you know they start talking about Nemo and it's like the only thing I thought that was really interesting here and it's about a filmmaker we're going to actually talk about pretty soon I think is when it cuts to Doug Sweetland and I thought his interviews were really fascinating because Doug Sweetland goes on to direct the short film Presto which I believe we're covering pretty soon along with another film at um I think at Sony no at Warner Brothers that is going to be a detour which has pretty poor reviews but it's something I actually will probably go to bat for like it's oh, very... is, he, is he the guy that got the note from um Andrew Stanton is he? Is he the one? Is that the one about like not paying attention to Nemo on the like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, that, yeah. That, that was that probably guy. my favorite scene. He's and also the like, one who like acts out Woody's. He also acts out Woody's walk when yeah. um they're doing that. And yes. Yeah. So what we're talking about is during an early screening of just early work on Finding Nemo. There's a scene with Marlin and Nemo, and the Doug Stillman. So uh, Sweetland, Sweetland, Doug Sweetland is the animator in charge of that scene and they show it and then Andrew Stanton gives him a note that Nemo looks dead in the scene and then you go back to the board that he had been working on Doug Sweetland 
and did I get his name right? Yeah, yeah, it is. That's stuck. Okay, it's stuck I'm sorry. You're right. You got it. You got it. Um, but you go back to his board and you see that in the scene he has it all blocked out, kind of beat for beat, but he's only drawn Marlin. And then you, you get to watch him like go back and draw in the changing expressions for Nemo, and it's mm -hmm. a little bit truncated. But then you you get to watch that, and then you get to watch the final thing, and that was super cool. It's just nice to know that there is that kind of clear communication behind the scenes, and then they could show nothing. No, few things that they did made like the animation seem so tangible as that moment where you got to see him take it from drawing on the board to working with the computers i think and we mentioned this in our finding Nemo episode i think the best bit of bts air quotes of finding Nemo is the ted talk where andrew stanton explains exactly like where the idea of nemo came from and mm -hmm. i feel like this movie this documentary is never interested in that stuff. It's never interested in, like, where did this come from? Like, because if what we love about Pixar and what Tom Hanks and Tim Allen rightfully point out as, we were watching this movie and crying over our cowboy doll, where did that idea come from? Like, shouldn't that be what the toy... Like, if that is the iconic scene of Toy Story 2, why don't we talk about where that came from? Where did the idea come from to give Jesse that backstory? Where did the... I also want to say, Monsters Inc. completely glossed over in this. It's literally like, oh, Pete Doctor had to make his own thing. We were working on fur. Shot of, uh, of solar glasses. Cut to Bill, Billy mm -hmm. Crystal's like, yeah, I actually do a voice room. It's not just my speaking voice. I was like, oh, shit, you do. I didn't realize that now that you're doing it. And then it's like, oh, we were really worried. It made money. This puts the pressure off the next filmmaker. Cut to Finding Nemo. It's like, great. I learned absolutely nothing about this. You gave me nothing. You, you. I Yeah, I think, you know, this is kind of, I mentioned this even as we were watching the last few films. I felt like my idea of Pixar was beginning to crystallize. And I feel like there is that sense from them too. Like, obviously, if this documentary gets made, you know, they're, they're, trying to tell the story that is the narrative of their company it's almost like they're trying to make this movie to sell it to investors very to much so keep and going then, forward and then the ending comes in where bob Iger shows up and i was like oh yeah i definitely had to buy them because they're, they're great and you know i don't want to mess with their formula and i installed uh these guys in charge of both disney and pixar it's like well then of course you mess with their formula and i keep coming back to this but the moment when Roy, it's Roy Disney who gives it, he goes like, there's a place for traditional animation and CGI animation in the world, and people don't want to think that, but we're going to do it. And then literally, like, three years, four years after this, Disney puts out their second-hand drawn animated movie in, since this movie came out, and then they go like, ah, that's it, we're done, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's just great, like, fantastic. Yeah. I'm glad, like, this, it's, I just find the entire thing and that's the other thing too is like i think about you know when we talk about the incredibles in this and talk about the incredibles in this it's just don laster going like i saw a great story there because it was about a family and that family dynamic it doesn't really get to like why is the family dynamic interesting in the incredibles like why and then meanwhile i think about this documentary i saw on the iron giant dvd that i blu-ray that i have and there's a new documentary on it where it's like the new stuff but then I also think about this old one they have from the original like release of the film where Brad Bird gives you that line that I kept repeating with 
you know, when we talked about the Iron Giant, which is what if a gun had a soul and didn't want to be a gun? It's like, that is such a beautiful breakdown of what that movie is. And mm-hmm. the fact that the Nemo segment, it's like, yes, you're not paying attention to Nemo, but <laughs> I hate to be very blunt about this, but the point of finding Nemo is Marlin. Like, Nemo is definitely an important character to get right, but, like, why don't we get a breakdown of the whale scene? Like, and again, yeah. it's something where it's like, I know we're rushing through all these movies at the end, because we have to get, and I do actually think the best part of this documentary is, like, the first, up the build-up to Toy Story. Because all that stuff is stuff, even though we mentioned it on this podcast, we kind of had to rush through because it's like, well, we got to talk about these many shorts right now. And all that stuff, like, there's a lot of details in there, not that I've written down because, again, I had a rough day today. <laughs> I can't remember how much of these details. But I was like, oh, okay, cool. You know, like. Yeah. They didn't. I, yeah. Well, whatever. That's that's kind of the, that's the thing that I can provide is my limited information comes from us doing this podcast. And I'm like, how do you not spend more time on the Brave Little Toaster? Because it seems like so much of that influenced Toy Story and it was also like the star-studded voice cast and that kind of thing they also mention Rescuers Down Under which we refused to do we refused to do that and Beauty and the Beast also yeah. actually that's something that stood out to me is that um, there's that point in the very beginning of the documentary where it's like John Lasseter got his job at Disney and then we get the point that set me into an existential crisis for the rest of the documentary but then also it's like my first film I was working on was uh, Fox and the Hound are you like and I'm like they're showing a couple of fogs and I'm like yeah this looks pretty good and then he's like it sucks <laughs> there's no he didn't say it like that but it's like it was cheap you can see there's no depth to the image and as soon as he said that I was like oh yeah there is no depth to this image he's right and then I immediately you know not immediately but like 20 minutes later we see the clips of Rescues Down Under which is whatever it's Rescues Down Under but then we get the scene of Beauty and the Beast where it's like you know the scene that everyone talks about with Pixar Beauty and the Beast of course is the ballroom scene but the scene they chose, choose to excerpt here is the opening where it's like you know a fairy tale pop-up book but it's like zooming into it and it's like no yeah because it it is giving you impression of a pop-up book in stained glass but there's a depth there that you don't get from the fox and the hound clip they show which to me if you told you show me the fox and the hound clip without pointing out to me there's no depth there i probably wouldn't know there's no depth but as soon as he said that he's like oh yeah they're falling down it's like it looks like it's all in the same plane and then, of course, as I just said, the cap stuff shows way better. I also love the... Um, were, were you talking about that as an example of, like, how your perception changed? What do you mean? Oh, I don't know. I just... <laughs> I, I, just I, thought, I, thought, I thought you just... You made that leap to, like, talking about their CGI stuff, but I, I thought you were going somewhere else with it. Never mind. Oh, no, I just meant that this was, like, a part of the doc at the beginning where I thought, oh, this was interesting. This is something oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. that I think is... I think when it gets into the nitty-gritty of both the animation and the tech in the first 40 minutes, there's also a moment, I can't remember who does the interview, but it's one of this guy, I think it's just an animator, he's being interviewed at his desk behind a computer, of course, and it's like a very old Macintosh, and you can see just Nemo behind it on it, I'm like, dang, did they do that on that? <laughs> like, did they make me, as soon as I saw those computers, I was like, Oh yeah, they probably did make all these movies on those computers. I was like, I should watch more of these BTSs just so I could see like the bad computers they did this. Because I think once when you see the computers they animated on, you're just like, oh wow, these really are achievements. <laughs> yeah. Well, man, they sent people to the moon with nothing. This is this this is doesn't this documentary have a moment where it cuts to the moon stuff? And I'm just like, oh, I think 
Uh, maybe you're it's not about the Star Trek scene. No, no, no. I'm thinking there was a moment in this documentary where they cut to like JFK going like, "We send people to the moon because we can," but maybe I'm mixing it up with something else. Oh well, I think there's a lot of like old radio footage because I do think that at this point they're trying to make Pixar seem like part of Americana. And I think that we saw little bits of that. Of course, we've talked about that for a while. Is like Pixar Studio is like having this dance with ideas about, you know, like traditional America. And I think this documentary is really trying to say that the, the films are something that Americans should value because they are about Americans, even though, you know, you, can, you could say that like, they brought in Brad Bird, an outside director, to make The Incredibles, which was about America in the 50s. And other than that, they've kind of been all over the place until we get to this documentary. And then you really see, like, that's really what I think of when I think of, like, the hands crafting the clay and the talking to the old animators they really want to present this nostalgic picture of a very young company. It's the new Americana. <laughs> it's not like marijuana. Not what I was thinking of actually when I said that, but it came up to my mind. Uh, Incredible. That's a good Green Day thing. It's a real. That's not a Green Day song. It's a. It's a. It's an actual song. You've never heard it. It goes. We are the new Americana. Oh, maybe I think that Raised that song on legal. Is... Wait, I skipped the line. It doesn't matter. I don't know who the song is. My <laughs> God. Okay. Do you want me to do my intermission? Then we can go back to this. Oh, yeah. This? Do you have Do you have like some so, breaking news or so something Mark's like that? So Mark's Wi-Fi went down. Okay. Which you means... probably couldn't tell. Yeah. But... but that meant that when he was getting back on, I was checking my, my GC that I'm in my group chat. And I saw that I started an argument <laughs> before I recorded because um, this, the big thing on film Twitter last weekend was this writer for Screen Crush, which is not a great site, but I do generally like this writer when I read. Well, I like his reviews. You know, it's something. It's just, you know, they're the David Elrooks of the world where you like, you know, you really like reading like their fancy writing. The Walter Chaws of the world where you like reading their writing but don't like reading anything else from them. And then there are the Matt Singers of the world who is the guy you go to read for a take on. A movie like you know like a blockbuster you know where it's like i don't want to read what david elric or walter Shaw have to say about um shazam 2 <laughs> you know i'll go to matt singer that's that's who matt singer is to me it's like okay anyway he sends out a tweet i think on saturday where it's like um oh let me just read the tweet let me find the exact tweet because it, it's it's a tweet that went viral for like the worst reasons it's about movie theaters and it's about kids movies which is relevant to our podcast um all right, from two days ago, as of this time recording, so I guess that's Saturday, uh, Matt Singer tweets, As a parent of little kids, it'd be great if there was literally any movie in theaters right now I could take them to. Um, he then becomes... He gets... I think that's a very, uh, very, like, amicable tweet. I'm like, yes, agree, 100%. Like, why are there no movies out for kids right now that they can see? Um, people get really mad at him for this. He gets attacked and dunked on across the film Twitter with basically four main points, which is one, Puss in Boots is still out, which is like, okay, it's mid-March for a movie that came out at Christmas. He definitely already took his daughter, which he says later on in the thread of this argument, his, five, his five-year-old daughter, he already took her to Puss in Boots. Um, that, uh, how dare you tweet this the weekend Shazam 2 comes out, where again... 
I don't think she's... As someone who has been on board with the whole, like, I would take a kid to see the first Shazam and probably the second Shazam. I don't think I'd take a five-year-old to see. That's like an eight-year-old or nine-year-old movie. You know, like, that's that's a movie you give to someone who's beyond kindergarten or first grade. Be like, here, you can have a big kid movie for once, you know? Like, it's not like a kid, kid movie. Mm-hmm. And then it's also like, why don't you watch a movie at home? And this is the this is the point that uh, got me mad. Because, I, as I said, I sent... So Matt Singer, right before I got on, posted an article. Or at least I saw that he posted it earlier today. I've been busy today, as everyone here knows. Posted an article. like, all right, here's here's all the responses I got. And here's my responses to it in a nice, convenient article. So you guys can just leave me alone. What, first thing, why don't you watch a movie at home? It's like, well, of course I can watch a movie at home. We've uh, I, There's a lot of great choices at home. This whole thing came from my wife is out of town with my other kid and I wanted to do a daddy-daughter like trip to the movies and there's nothing out. So get off my back about this. He doesn't exactly say this, but it's just like, you know. And anyway, so I, I checked my group chat and I saw someone was literally making that article of an argument. I was like, just read the damn article, okay? <laughs> anyway, I'm trying to think. He's like, there's four points here I need to make. And it's like, oh, just wait for Mario. It's like, yeah, of course I'm going to go see Mario, but like it's spring break. Or the kids' movies. Do you agree with him? Do you think he should be allowed to take his daughter to the movies? Yeah, sure, whatever. All right. I wanted to ask you what? I was saying, uh, I was just transitioning back, but you were doing it already. Sorry. Oh, dear. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask you um, you mentioned something about your dad watching the documentaries on the DVD that you had, and you were like, oh, this isn't for me because I'm a kid. And he's interested in the history of that. I wondered if you had anything else in your, like, this is going way back. I want to ask you if you have anything in your movie cabinet or whatever you had, because we had a movie cabinet that was, like, too old for you, and then you either came around to it or you were baffled by it. Because this is my tale of, like, getting into movies. Is My dad had a copy of 2001 A Space Odyssey, and he had a lot of astronomy and Star Trek movies on the the shelf and all of that. But I remember, like, that was such a light switch on for me, was pulling down 2001 A Space Odyssey and then starting it one time and not getting through it the first time. And then the second time, it was like, bang. I don't know. It's it's just neat seeing what movies other people like to collect in their lives. Because I feel like if you take a look at my movie shelf, you get a very clear picture of my viewing habits. But... You know, with other people, it's it's more difficult. I feel like my parents had, like, some of the, like, big hits of the year, especially if it was, like, family movies, or if they had some kind of deep personal connection to it, like they had the Star Trek movies, and then also my mom um, was a big fan of Speed Racer, so we had Speed Racer. Well, my first overall answer to you um, is to jump ahead to high school, and then we can go back further my dad this is gonna be controversial even though i've come around on this take it's one of those things where it's like um what was the movie i was talking about oh i was talking to someone about john wick earlier and it was like i remember my original take on john wick 2 and i do not stand by it at all um and this is my original take on lord of the rings i'm about to say which is um my dad for a long portion of life only had the extended versions of two towers and return of the king did not have any copy of fellowship so, for a long time, it's, you know, like, I'm not even going to bother with him. Because he doesn't have the first movie, right? Mm-hmm. Then my dad got the Blu-ray, and we got a Blu-ray player of Fellowship, finally. And he was like, but I don't need to update my DVDs, because I don't want the extended, like, I, I mean, he didn't get, the, he got, like, the theatrical version of Fellowship. 
mm-hmm. I think one New Year's Eve I watched Fellowship. Really enjoyed it. To a like you know like a decent amount. Not I was never really I only have recently been like begrudgingly okay towards fantasy. So at that time I was like, yeah, this is pretty good for a fantasy movie. Um, mm-hmm. And then I put in two towers. Where, you know, you have the guide in front of you where it's like, this scene is extended and this is the scene you can skip if you want to watch a theatrical cut. The thing is, is like, when you skip, you still have those extended scenes in there, right? And also, then you're not really watching the movie. You're watching the counter at the bottom of the scene. This is the scene where you skip. And I hated it. I absolutely... People got mad at me till 2020, or was it 2021, when I finally watched all these movies because I had two towers on Letterboxd at a 1.5 out of 5, and then had like Return the King unviewed because I was like I refuse. <laughs> like that one was that like the two towers is too bad. I can't can't go through that experience again. And then the music box showed all three of them, and I watched all three of them in a weekend. Um, and now two towers is the one I'm like I have the hot take of like this is the best one, you know. Um, but anyway, I feel that. But then like I don't know like going back in time to like my dad and mom's DVD collection. It's really hard to say because, well, first off, I'm just randomly remembering my dad had the VHS of Titanic, which is crazy to me because it's, they didn't, my mom hates Titanic. My mom mom has like one of those weird mom takes about Titanic, which is, once she gave the middle finger, I completely lost interest because that's not historically accurate. And, you know, now that I'm older, because my mom said that like back when I was like 10 to me. And I hadn't even seen Titanic. I saw like a bit of it on TV. And she's like, I don't like that movie because she does something inappropriate and doesn't make sense. For, it takes me out of the time it's supposed to be in. And mm-hmm. I found out later it's the middle finger thing. But then it's like, now it's like, well, first off, I just rewatched Titanic last month and I, I don't even remember when she gives the finger. Um, second, so it's like this thing that really stuck out to my mom. It's like, I'm watching it, looking for it. I don't even see it. But then also it's like, why did you even own it? <laughs> like, you know, because that was an expensive, v- that was a two VHS thing. But the thing with my parents is it wasn't really movies they had that I didn't get. It was TV shows. Because my mm. dad had all of Mission Impossible on DVD. I think he had all of um, Superman, the George Reeves Superman show on DVD. And the thing about George Reeves Superman is um, there was a point in my life where my dad was showing me that, and I did actually like it. Because, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a little campy, but it's still like Superman. And it's not as campy as Batman. Like, it does take itself way more seriously than the 60s Batman show does. But then Mission Impossible, I remember he tried to show me a couple times, I was just completely, like, did not understand it. And I remember, you know, when I finally got into the movies around the time, um, I think in 2011, because that's when Ghost Protocol came out, and that was, like, you know, the one that everyone was like, oh, this one's going to be really great, go check it out. Um, mm-hmm. My dad tried to show me some of the show, and I was just, like, so still, like, do not understand this at all but what's weird is my, my parents in general like i was talking to my boss about this earlier because she's like my dad's turning this age i'm like dang my dad's like a year younger than your dad and you're like 15 years older than me um but I, i've always had old parents you know we've talked about that before mm-hmm. but it's just also like most of the old stuff my dad showed me i liked like the twilight zone like star trek um the original series i like i yeah. i generally like all that stuff but mission impossible was always just like i <laughs> don't understand it i think it's more interesting to talk about like the stuff that like my parents kept away from me that yeah. was in the stuff i was a lot because i think i've mentioned this on i mentioned this on why is is um spider-man the sam raimi spider-man movie he always made me skip the scene where with the kiss like in the mm. alleyway because my mom and my dad and this is accurate i suppose to the film is like she's about to get assaulted in that scene but it's like okay 
but I'm a six-year-old boy at the time this movie comes out. Do you? I'm not going. I'm just going to register. Oh no, Spider-Man's girlfriend's in danger. Up, oh, Spider-Man's here to beat those guys up. Um, and the fact that it became this like taboo scene was just something where like, if they just shown it to me, I wouldn't have thought twice about it. This is actually kind of related to what I was saying about the Shazam 2 guy. The guy who was saying, go take a the Shazam 2. <laughs> and similarly with The Dark Knight, my dad was... And then The Dark Knight I get a bit more. But The Dark Knight came out when I was 13. I wasn't allowed to go see it. Because of the scene where the Joker gets the pencil thing. But the thing is, that happened so quick. It's like you don't yeah. even notice it as a kid. But then the, yeah. the thing that actually is disturbing in The Dark Knight, which my dad also cited, which I can agree with, is... The stuff where it's like the Joker sends those videos. So it's like the guy like Oh yeah. That that he, stuff is like actually legitimately disturbing. So I'm like, okay, like that that's okay to skip. But the pencil thing is like you it's a big part of the plot you miss. So it's just you get kind of confused when you skip that scene because it's like that's when the Joker really takes over the mob. And it's like, well, you missed it. But the other stuff is just like, yeah, this is messed up. But like yeah. I get and I get I kind of get shielding me from that part, but Again, it's one of those things where like, you show a movie to kids and you skip over the scene. It becomes taboo. And it's like, then you want to see what's in the scene. It's the Streisand effect. Not that you know that when you're a child. But, um... And you know, this is going what... back to also... <laughs> what? I just think it's funny. We could also talk about, like, when did you learn who Barbara Streisand was? <laughs> Which I Barbara think is... Barbara Streisand! do 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 Sorry, go on. Um, well, no. Now, now to get back to me. And what you were saying earlier, where it's like, it's crazy to think about our parents' DVD collections, is mm-hmm. I have a very big physical media collection. And I hope to get married and have kids someday. Actually, I've been having this whole separate existential crisis, you know, where I'm watching movies like After Sun in 65, um, two very similar films that I keep enjoying to compare to each other. <laughs> Man, Adam Driver is fighting dinosaurs, and I haven't even found a wife well no like, no God they're damn. both incredible they're they're very um very like also like last of us of course um very much like person becomes like single dad type of movie you know like and i was like mm-hmm. oh i I, like, I don't want to be a single dad i'm like i'm not actually looking to be a personally a single dad but i'm just like ah oh, it's gonna be nice when i can afford being a single dad um or like no <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> like afford being a dad or like being able to like look for this thing. And that's this whole thing also with my insurance where I'm like, oh my gosh, everything's falling apart. I can barely afford existing <laughs> right now. And now it's going to cost me probably forty or fifty more dollars a month to exist. <laughs> yeah. Um <laughs> speaking of dinosaurs, imagine if we had some kind of poll that was like best visual effects of all time and how things have like aged or whatever i was you know speaking of the documentary that we watched and they do that thing where they show how pixar or maybe it was like lucasfilm did work on the dinosaurs for jurassic park and i'm like man that has got to be like that that would be up there in my imaginary list of best visual effects of all time what i do want to mention is um there is the you know we've I think we've you talked about your Star Trek DVD so I know you've seen this before and I've seen that movie before too but the way this movie mm-hmm. built up to the reveal of the Genesis sequence in Star Trek Wrath of Khan is like oh yeah I do get how it, it's kind of like earlier when I was saying with the Fox and the Hound thing where it was like oh yeah there is no depth to that image you're right John Laster it's when they're like we were doing these crazy camera movements and like showing you things you've never seen before I'm watching I'm like 
Oh yeah, they're right. These camera movies really didn't exist at this time, at the scale they're going for. That's it is like the best part of this this show was the first half. What else was I gonna say about? Well, I saw recently. I also saw this weekend. I went to actually. It's very funny. Did I tell you this? If I didn't, I'll, I'm gonna say it on mic anyway. Uh, mm-hmm. I went to a screening on Saturday of On Her Majesty's Secret Service in 35 millimeter. Um, it's so great that the letterbox game is dead because now I can say the movies I saw without worrying about them having to come up in the game later on. Uh, <laughs> but um, I'm going to relate this back to the visual effects point. Trust me. Um, That's all good. The, the one thing I want to mention before I talk about that is I went. If you go to a move a big screening of like a you know a classic of some kind. In this case, like a like you know I think nowadays everyone who like likes. Who isn't, you know, just like, I Craig and only Daniel Craig. I think most people will say On Her Majesty's Secret Service is like a top five, top three Bond movie now. Like, it's that's kind of where the critical consensus has come around on it, which is really fascinating with it. And you know what? I saw it and I agree with it. Um, so you go to a big repertory screening in Chicago, almost always right afterwards, the letterbox page will be full of people, like, who went there. Mm-hmm. Have you seen On Her Majesty's Secret Service? No, I'm not Do a you know Bond how it scholar. Do you know no. how it ends? Well, no. I'm going to spoil a film from 1969 right now. So, Diana Rigg is the Bond girl in this, and she's fantastic. She's really great. That's not a spoiler. Great Muppet Caper. Hell yeah. She's she's fantastic in this. Um, She's, like, someone who actually, like... It's the closest I think you get to, like... You know how nowadays it's like, we we were trying to make Loshana Lynch on the same level of James Bond, you know? Stuff like that. Um, It's just, like, that Mm -hmm. in the 60s where it's like, okay, cool. Like, they... She's not on the level, obviously, because it's a James Bond movie. So she still has... In the 60s, so she still has to be a damsel in distress at one point. But she holds her own against, like, Blofeld, and it's very great. But anyway, their romance is very sweet in the movie. And they get married. Like, that's the big thing. And, you know, once... Once James Bond gets married, you know it's going to be screwed because you know that's never going to work out for him. Yeah. And the ending of the movie. Well, okay. Before I tell you the ending, there's there's two people in the theater who are annoying, and everyone in Letterbox afterwards goes to complain. One of them is just someone who's like giggling at a lot of things. Whatever. There's this other guy who it took me forever to place what his laugh sounded like, and then I finally got it. He sounds like. Coincidentally, um, in Spider-Man 1, when I skipped the scene of, um, trust me, this this is all related, (laughs) when I skipped the scene of um, the kiss, it jumps ahead to the fire rescue scene, where, you know, the Green Goblin's in there, and and it took me forever to place the the laugh he had, or the guffaw, more like, and it sounded like the Green Goblin in that scene, where he's pretending to be the the woman, he goes... That's it. Oh. But it, it was way louder than that. And more of an obvious, like, ha type of thing, too, to it. And mm-hmm. he would do this at, like, anything that happened in the movie. Or, and it just, like, you know, there are moments, it's a James Bond movie, so there are jokes in it that are funny. But I'm trying to remember a moment before the last one that was inappropriate where he did this. I think it was just, like, the girl saying, like, looking at him like he was attracted, she was attracted to him, you know? And it's like, ah Like, you know, it's the fun girl, ah Type of thing. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so the end of On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which is a great movie. Everyone should watch it. It's, gr- like, I, I think it is a great movie. It's not a, like, it's a, it's a fantastic Bond movie, but it's a great movie. Dot. Like, it, it's really fun. Really great action. Anyway, oh no no, and he was all sorry sorry. I will. He was laughing like throughout like the ski sequence where like the shots were a little you know it's 1969 so you're shooting this scene where someone's chasing James Bond shooting him on skis. It's going to look a little bad at points. Like it's just 
a fact of it. And anytime mm. it like would cut to like clear archive footage, he would laugh. Anyway, so in this movie is they get married, they're on their like drive to their honeymoon. James Bond goes, "Baby, we got all the time in the world." And then Blowfield and his sidekick basically come up and do like a very not a, re- a realistic for a Bond movie drive-by shooting of their car. And it's like our Bond's like they miss baby and then you just see she's dead on the windshield. And this guy just laughs. And, then, and you can just hear... Then, then finally, one guy in the audience... I wish I had done this earlier. One guy just goes, Dude, what is wrong with you? And I'm like, oh my god. And then you know what happens next? On the, the screen appears... Ends. Yeah, it appears. Eon, uh, Eon copyright 1969. That is the final shot is James Bond cradling her dead body. Which is... A fantastic, tragic ending to a Bond movie. I was like, damn. I, I always heard this had an emotional ending, but it's really just like, it's so sudden. And that's why it's so yeah. good. It's like, holy shit. Um, anyway, Honor Magic Secret Service. Anyway, I go on Letterboxd after the movie, and every review is like, this fucking idiot in the audience of Honor Magic Secret Service would not shut the fuck up. <laughs> and what the hell like I, I, I start commenting like what, what, why would you even go to this like why would you go to a repertory screening of a 1969 James Bond movie expecting everyone to be okay with you making fun of it like and it's not like a midnight show where it's rowdy this is at the Gene Siskel Film Center this is not like the Alamo Draft House this is the Gene Siskel Film Center and this guy's just laughing his ass off at James Bond's tragic ending and they're just like what like what the hell and it says a lot to the movie that I still like felt really emotional at the ending anyway all this to say is that movie came out in the same year as 2001 A Space Odyssey but there are moments of that movie where I guess it's also kind of stunt work but I thought it was just very impressively shot I was like how was this movie made in 19, because I've seen Goldfinger and From Rush With Love, which are, you know, a couple years prior. And the action in this movie is way closer to what I've seen, like, in the original Mad Max movie that comes out, like, a couple years later. Again, I actually do recommend it. It's very good. Um, even though I've told you how it ends, but I think you'd still enjoy it. It's also it's, pretty much I, the basis yeah, of Austin Yeah, you've things that make me excited about it. Yeah, but, like, there's a sequence, like, the, the third act is basically Blowfield's trying to escape the mountain, so there's some skiing, and there's a moment where they get on the bobsleds, and, like, they play around with the brakes, and they jump on the bobsled, like, you know, they, they, they're they doing some really, like, cool stunt work, and it's just, like, wow, like, mm-hmm. I am exhilarated by this. Um, there's also, like, this really great moment, death, that I don't want to say exactly what happens, but it's the best one-liner of the movie, because Bond turns to the camera after and goes, like, I guess you could say that guy has guts. <laughs> and I was like, yes. Oh, no. That was like the one point where like the audience was like, okay, yes, we can go. That was the one part everyone in the audience was like, yeah. Like the guy in front of us was going, yeah. <laughs> but we were like actually cheering because it was like fantastic. Was not expecting that. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, but my I point mean, is, is like, you know, like I was watching this in 1969. It's like, I, you know, we're in the 60s right now in the snub club too. And I'm just like, this looks so much better. And then, of course, uh, obviously 2001 looks better than it. Because 2001 is designed to be like a visual effects showcase. And also 2001 mm. is a better movie. But watching on Our Majesty's Secret Service was like a kind of like... That's always a fun way to watch old movies to me. It's like what you were saying Jurassic Park. You're like, this must have been mind-blowing at the time. Yeah, well, it still is. Uh, I wanted, I'm checking in with my, my, my body and with us. And I wonder if we have... Do we have any thoughts about Pixar going forward you know can we imagine we don't know what we know about how the Everyone's disney going to die 
Disney merger. Everything is going. Everything they're talking about that's beautiful is going to go to waste. Several of these people are going to be canceled for varieties of reasons, and everything is bad. And there are no women interviewed in this documentary until like the last five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Can I ask you something about documentaries in general? And this is kind of a tangent, but it it was something that got me thinking about this film. And also because I watched Citizen Four the other day, and I was thinking about both of these films together, and how. Oh no! But it's free on YouTube. I I know I I literally been mean I I meant to watch it before all the Beauty and the Bloodshed. I just didn't. Look, man, my life is falling apart right now. We've gone over this. We're all going to die one day. (laughs) How how do you expect to have children if you can't watch Citizen Four? on youtube physical media you gotta buy physical media that's the rule uh but it's it has to get out to the public anyway i'm thinking about this these two films and how they like if you don't know how well i think sometimes it's obvious even to a layperson but and no i don't mean to say layperson in a super demeaning way but how obviously they like play with reality in order to like set a scene for you for example in this film when Brad Bird is like hyping up the audience during his first time talking to people and he's like, I come from outside and he's making these jokes which land with varying amounts of efficacy and you can clearly tell that they've like cut laughs together so that um, like the jokes land better. (laughs) Sorry, he doesn't look terrible. Sorry, go on. What? (laughs) They've put some laughs in so he doesn't look like a terrible person. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think some of the laughs are, like, there, but I just, it's wild to me, and I'm thinking about Citizen Four, not because there there's stuff about that documentary that I wish, you know, I, I don't know, because some of those, some of those things I can be more forgiving about, because what that movie does a lot of the time is it will take long interviews and condense them down so that they seem like speeches, and you can follow a, a thread, and I'm kind of like, okay, well, I get what you're doing. You do kind of cut it to look like a speech, though, instead of an interview. And they also do this thing where, well, I don't know if you know the story of Edward Stone or whatever, but he originally <laughs> tried to leak his... I've seen the, uh, I've seen the Joseph Gordon-Levitt movie based on the documentary where Laura Poitras shows up, I believe, played by Melissa Leo in a cameo. Who, who plays... Does anyone play Glenn Greenwald in that movie? Uh, I'm pretty sure Archive, I can quickly open it up. Okay, well, it doesn't matter. The thing is, just about that movie, is that when the first time we meet Glenn Greenwald, who, if no one is as up-to-date, I mean, like, just watch this film as I did, and or maybe you just remember, because I was <laughs> Actually, wait, 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 I want child. you to think about... I want you to guess who plays Glenn Greenwald. I will give a hint, okay? It is an actor from a franchise we talked about a lot today, Star Trek. Star Trek. Oh, okay, interesting. Can I get a series? No, it's not a series. Ooh, is it the guy that played Spock whose name escapes me right now? Yes, it's Zachary Quinto. And let me tell you, when I first read it, I was like, (laughs) I looked at it and I was like, oh my gosh, it's Shazam. I was like, oh no, that's Zachary Levi. I was like, oh no, not Shazam. Shazam showed up again. Get him out of here. But yeah, Zachary Quinto plays Glenn Gould. And Melissa Leo is Laura Poitras. What a but, great cast. Um, the first time we meet Glenn Greenwald in Citizen Four, we sh- we see him like talking on the phone and 
typing an article on his laptop and it's like there's b-roll of his laptop and his dogs to more cleanly edit the phone call like you do in a documentary but i'm like am i like spoiled by youtube documentaries because i would never accept this from a youtube essayist like if you try to create some dumb scene for me instead of just giving me narration or like showing me your cuts like i i have no patience for that and i'm, I'm curious I'm a to little... check it out because mm-hmm. i'm curious to check out system four because one it's obviously probably like one of the most important movies made in the last like decade or so at least like on a political like you know it's, yeah i'm not there's really two talking movies. about there's like a, there's i think citizen everyone four should see citizen four i just mean it's like you think about how this documentary is made it's kind of full of well, like ridiculous documentary conventions and i'm like I, what I get like, why you watched Goodfellas because obviously that's going to get you in a good mood. But I kind of wish you'd rush, rush to watch All the Beauty and the Bloodshed because one, I could actually talk about that. And two, by the way, it's on HBO Max. Everyone should check it out. It's. I kind of want to revisit it because the more and more I think about it, I gave it four and a half stars. I'm like, mm, I think it's a, I think it's a, fi- I, I'm thinking it's five stars. You know, <laughs> you know, mm. like the, the the meme of John Wick going like, I'm thinking it's five stars, baby. I don't. That was a really bad Keanu. Um, but well, I think that you know, especially with something like Citizen Four, where just what they say is interesting enough, so that you feel, Eileen, I feel like you don't have to like, you don't to need to hide your the, cuts. To clarify to the more casual listeners, the reason I brought up all the Beamy bloodshed is not just that it's a movie that I like that's a documentary. It's because it's from the same director of Citizen Four. Like <laughs> to be very clear, it's not just like, well, you should watch the like, documentary. I'm being like, well, I'm curious now because I, I don't. One, I saw all the beating the bloodshed like in January, so I don't remember those details. But I don't think it does any recreations. If that, that's your time, I like those recreations in Citizen Four, which to uh, me would defeat yeah, the point. I would point. honestly call them recreations because it's like so if you know how B roll works, then how on earth like there's a there is oh my god there's a fucking moment where Edward Snowden looks out a window and then we see his perspective out the window. And it cuts between the two, and I'm like, this is this is stupid. It's like that, the best shot of Creed three that no one's talking about, which is when Michael B. Jordan and Tessa Thompson share an entire conversation through their bathroom mirrors. And I was like, this is great. <laughs> I was like, this is fantastic. I don't know anyone who actually does this, but this is fantastic. I love this. <laughs> like... Well, that's that's some special. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because I feel like in that in our last episode we kind of were like throwing some shade at the blocking of of creed 3 but oh, you were i liked it sorry we're going yeah well okay i mean that but that's a that's a good moment um but anyway i just feel now i i feel like i really expect it from documentarians and essayists to be very very clear about the timeline of events in the things they shot like wow. if you if you try to like create this scene with how, your documentary that how is into documentaries are you though i don't want to be like accusing you because i'm not really into doc basically here's how here's how my documentary viewing goes every year okay i will mm-hmm. watch maybe two or three throughout the year when they show up at the mc or like they're the music box like movie of the month you know like where it's like it's free if you go see it and i'll be like okay yeah sure i'll go see this and then then the oscar noms come out i go like all right i'm trying to finish all of them and usually the docs are worth my time and then i watch all the doc noms that I missed this year, it was I think all of them besides all the Beauty and the Bloodshed. I think I'd seen the I'd seen no, I haven't seen Fire of Love yet. Yeah, so I watch all of them, and usually it's like ah yes, I like these, and then I do research afterwards. I'm like oh, I should have done research before I watch this. Uh, 
in mm-hmm. particular this year, and I don't want to, I don't want to go into all of this because I, I still have a very like vague knowledge of like Russian politics, but you know, there's one, the one, the one that won Best Picture is about uh, Alexei Navalny. I think that's his. I, I might have butchered his first. I think it's well, Navalny. See, I thought I butchered his first name, but no. <laughs> Navalny. Um, and you know, I watched this documentary. I'm like, hell yeah, this is a cool, cool movie. Great. And then I look online afterwards. It's like, and I was like, in the movie address that he like, you know, like the movie addresses that he like collisions with neo Nazis. So it's not like I'm gonna be canceled for liking this. And then I look online afterwards. It's like, yeah, it acknowledges it, but like, it's a, uh, it's not really like giving you the full picture. And I'm always like, ah, damn. I can't. I can't watch a movie about Russia. Here I am going bad against RRR for its politics, and I watch this movie about Russia where it's like, yeah, fuck Putin, yeah, great. And I'm like, now here I am saying saying right now, it's like, ah, oh, my opinion on Navalny might be Navalny might be wrong, but I also still might be wrong because you know I'm reading biased letterbox reviews too. So it's like a, but you know what I mean? Like it's like none of these things that are political documentaries are going to give you a full viewpoint of it. Uh, if it's, especially if it's like, you know, something that's not like. I'm sure Citizen Four I can watch and be like 100 percent on the side of it because I know the big gist of the Snowden story, you know, or like all the beauty in the bloodshed. I don't know who Nan Goldman it Golden is. I know controversial, um, but I do know um, a lot about the AIDS crisis. I do know a lot about the opioid crisis, so I can get what it's talking about in general and be like, yeah, she's cool, you know. But yeah. I, I guess my point here is like, what, what is your? Because I feel like every year I watch these documentaries that are nominated for both short documentary and documentary feature, and there's usually one that I like, right? And then there's like three that are like designed to be crowd pleasing. Then you read about the people afterwards and like, ah, this sucked. And actually, Navalny isn't even like the best example of this this year. That's to me, I'd say Fire Love is because I watched it and I was like. That was cute, I guess. And I look up afterwards, like, it cut all the interesting stuff of their story. And also, there was a Herzog documentary about this exact same subject this year that you probably should have watched instead. And I was like, damn it, I should have watched the Herzog. But, mm-hmm. I, I don't know, I guess, well, how many documentaries do you, like, I, I don't want to be like, do you just watch those before? But it's like, you know, Laura, it's Laura Port. Like, she's a name in the document. Like, I saw the Beating the Bloodshed before that documentary noms came out. Like, she's a name that you look out for. Do you watch like documentaries well, I mean, in general? Uh, in I mean, in general, I don't usually keep up with them, but I'm I like try to work my way through. Like, if it's a well-known documentary, I try to seek it out like years after it came out. Like, I remember I was going through like Michael Moore for a while. What I'm saying is, I think you make a fair point. Maybe I need to watch more documentaries when they come out. However, what I watch a lot of is video essays. Maybe I'm missing something about expectations of a documentary, but it's also like it's, it's journalism. I expect an amount of transparency. If I feel the like rhetoric working and I feel like someone is obviously trying to manipulate me, I really shut off. I also think some sometimes things are just kind of like stupid. Well, well I, I keep using that word and I should use something more specific. I think there there are a lot of choices that sometimes people make that kind of rely on the audience not knowing how film editing works for example but like the brad bird speech are we just supposed to accept that everyone laughed at all of his jokes when you're like cutting at the end of all of his jokes two shots of a laughing audience the best i can do is take this as a commentary on the the general perception of Brad Bird at the company. Like, you're telling me that Brad Bird was well-liked when he came to the company. Sure. But that is not what 
the images you're showing me are telling me. They're showing me that Brad, the actual, like, Brad Bird at this moment was received maybe ambivalently, and who knows what it was that actually really got people on board with working for Brad Bird, because I have no trouble believing that people, you know, didn't mind working for Brad Bird. He keeps showing up. But you've avoided digging deeper to tell the moment-by-moment truth of that and covered it up with, like, a filmmaking cliché. I think when it comes down to it, this will help you. comes down to it, there are two types of documentaries. And I know that's like what listening to, there are two types of people in the world. There are these three, the people who do this and people who don't. But in all reality, as someone who is not an expert in documentaries but watches documentaries, in terms of, like, actual film documentaries, and the reason I say that is because, you know, Netflix has this entire business where it's like they put up a documentary about, like, some cultural thing that happened and to me, that's not film. I'm sorry. It's like a TV. That's it's like, and I get this aired on wow. stars. So this is Martin technically Scorsese TV over here. But well, it's not. It's literally it's content. I hate to be like. I, I try not to demean anything as content, but it's literally like we're putting out a documentary this week about how Pepsi like lost a jet, and now we're putting up a documentary about how like this guy who was a meme got uh like killed someone. You know, it's like this. This is just all fodder. This is all fodder. Um, mm-hmm. But. When it comes to theatrical release documentaries, specifically the ones that I can go see in theaters as someone who lives in Chicago, aka someone who lives in like a major city like New York, LA, Chicago, you know, the general metropolises that will actually get like these types of releases, there are two types of movies. There are the Wikipedia entries, you know, the the like the Pavarotti's, the Linda Ronstance, the Song of My Heart, the um, Rita Moreno, Just a Girl Who Wanted to Go for It. I, I'm just listening to these off to see how many of them I can remember. Because I go see these because I have an AMCA list thing. And I'm like, I'm out of movie see. Oh, cool. There's a documentary out that's probably going to educate me on something I don't know. And I'll give you like 2.5 on Letterboxd because I'll hate the filmmaking of it. But I'll be like, okay, cool. I learned about Pavarotti. Even though Pavarotti actually was a bad one. I thought Pavarotti was a really bad documentary. Um, mm. Like... I didn't think I learned anything from it other than, oh, he, he sang good, you know? <laughs> like, it's like, great, I could have just listened to him. But then there wow, are... I, okay, okay I, there are actually three types of documentaries. There are... The, there's the Wikipedia entry. There's, of course, the concert documentary where it's made entirely from archive footage and maybe we get a couple talking heads here and there where... Like, I, I would say a cross between a Wikipedia documentary and a, um, a concert documentary is Summer of Soul. Um, but then there's also ones like Amazing Grace, where it's like the Aretha Franklin concert, and all you get as context beforehand is like um, text, like like this was filmed then, and now we're finally releasing it, and then like maybe there's like a talking head and before each song that gives you like context of why she picked that song, and then there's the actual films, which is stuff like Season Four, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. Um, I try to think of it, uh, Minding the Gap. In its own way, even though people might argue this is a Wikipedia document, and they might argue it's a TV show, OJ Made in America. I think that's like an actual film. And by that, I mean, I don't think it's, like, a Wikipedia description. And I think about this, because I think about... I put up, um, you know, it's in the year. I still haven't actually put up my year-end list, because I want to see... I think Return to Soul is finally getting a release this weekend here, which is this film I wanted to... A foreign film I wanted to see before I put up my 2022 list for everything. But I was looking at my documentary list before I saw the documentary noms for Best Picture... Uh, best Documentary, and it's like, well, there's all the being the bloodshed, which is great. And then it's the stuff I saw at AMC, where it's like, hallelujah, uh, where it's basically Wikipedia. That one actually, like, more than most Wikipedia, because it's like a Wikipedia of a song, and, like, the history of a song, its evolution. I thought that was interesting. But, like, all to say is that the Pexar story is one of those. <laughs> like, this is a Wikipedia documentary. This is not designed to, like, this is designed for someone like my dad, 
Or, moreover, someone who's flipping channels on stars and it's like, oh, Pixar. I like those movies. I want to see what these guys, how these guys came to be. And it gives you that. But then it does make those annoying cheap tricks of like, we're editing this together so it sounds particularly great. Or like, we're avoiding talking about um, the the rough stuff because we got to fit this into 90 minutes. It's got to show how great Pixar is going to be. And the one thing I want to mention, documentary that I haven't seen, but I've been meaning to watch for forever. I think it's on YouTube. Have you heard of the documentary The Sweatbox? No. Oh, man. The Sweatbox. Uh, let me look up the director. The director is Sting's wife. That's Or at least wife at the time. I don't know if she's... I guess oh, I, could... I do know about it. Now that... Okay, but go now tell the listeners what it is. Yes. Um, oh, she's still married. Oh, that's a nice long... Uh, that's a nice long celebrity marriage. Married in 1992. Still married. That's so nice. Anyway, so... St- I know. <laughs> Mark's giving me a shrug. Like, what are you, what are you talking about, Danny? No, um, I mean... No, I, I, was, I meant that as like a... Yeah, that's cool. But yeah, tell people um, what The Sweatbox is. So The Sweatbox is a movie that, unlike this, Disney will never release. Um, it's directed by Sting's wife, Trudy Styler. Um, St- in the 1990s, uh, Disney was going through a creative renaissance that they mentioned in this documentary. There's another documentary I haven't seen that I heard is good, but I also get the vibe that it's a Wikipedia documentary, um, as I call them, called Waking Sleeping Beauty about the Renaissance. Anyway, so the Renaissance is happening. You know, Beauty and the Beast, Lion King, they're slap. They're like, they slap. They're, 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 they're great. And then, you know, we get after where they're like, okay, well, Alan, well, one, Howard Ashman is dead. So he can't record everything. And Elton John, we can't pay to write every single movie. So let's... Lion King worked. Let's see what other musicians want to do it. And of course, we get Phil Collins doing Tarzan. And initially, the follow-up to Tarzan is supposed to be a film called Kingdom of the Sun. Which is... Eventually becomes um, The Emperor's New Groove. But Kingdom of the Sun is at its heart it's a hercules i i I remember always reading it was like compared to hercules but with a more serious tone Mm -hmm. um because i actually think emperor's new groove is very close to hercules in tone actually king of the sun was supposed to be this epic retelling of prince and the pauper an epic retelling of prince of the pauper set in ancient inca times um they got sting to the music sting wrote i think five or six songs i've never seen the documentary um has anyone it's on YouTube. You, you can watch it on YouTube. Like, oh my God, that's. Oh, I believe yes, you can. I was about to say like that's something I'd love to see, but because there's a there's a Disney approved version that did briefly screen at Toronto, but they still didn't want it released. Basically, what happens is this is this isn't me talking about the documentary, but I know the story of Kingdom of the Sun. Is basically this is a labor of love for the original director. Um, let me look up who the original director is. Roger Allers. Oh, well, yeah, he did. This was supposed to be his follow-up to Lion King, and then he left Disney afterwards because they fucked over his movie. Um, mm-hmm. Is Kingdom of the Sun? It's he is a labor of love. He's working on in 1987. Disney they keep screening for Disney, and it does not work. They don't think it works, and unlike in the past where you know Disney movies don't work, they try to fix it. In this case, they basically get a new they get a new director, and they make it you know what the Emperor's New Groove is because the Emperor's New Groove is like I love the Emperor's New Groove. I think I 100% think no matter how good Kingdom of Sun would have been in its like peak potential, I think the Emperor's New Groove is a better thing to get out of Disney. Personally, mm-hmm. like I think the Emperor's New Groove is a miracle of a movie in a lot of ways. Yeah. It, it, um, but. Anyway, so Sting was supposed to write, you know, the the music 
for the epic musical version King of the Sun. And when the Emperor's New Groove happens, it's like, well, this isn't a musical anymore. We still want you on board to write the songs. You know, he writes like, you know, the opening song of the Emperor's New Groove where it's like, um, the who sings that song? Uh, is it Tom? It's not Tom Waits. I want to say Tom Waits. It's not Tom Waits. And there's another guy, Tom Jones, I think, sings the song in the beginning of the Emperor's New Groove. And then also writes the end credits song. But the documentary is just basically Sting gets a front row seat to this movie completely falling apart and being like completely shafted into the role. And Disney looks terrible in it. It's just like, you know, it's just one of those things where it's like, that's a documentary. That's like an actual story. And I'm the one thing I've been very curious about on Disney Plus that I haven't watched because I don't want to watch it because it's very long is there's this and I might I think we might have actually mentioned this on this podcast before is there's I think it's a five episode series about Frozen 2 in <laughs> the making of Frozen 2 but everyone I know who's seen it has been like I can't believe Disney released this because it just makes a like because you know it ends up like we pulled it off we made a great movie and then it's like you watch it and every single issue anyone who hates Frozen 2 watches that movie can be like oh this makes sense now because mm-hmm. it's like they were they did you remember you, you haven't seen Frozen 2 and I don't recommend it. I know you haven't seen no. it. Um the first trailer for Frozen 2 um is I don't know if you remember the first trailer at all. It's a it's like a you know, it's a classic teaser trailer where it doesn't tell you anything about the plot. It's Elsa taming the water horse, which is in the final movie, and it's like the title Frozen 2 appears, and then there's this scene of these two characters who are not in Frozen 2 at all as an actuality. Like they these character models are not in the film. Like the final film. And one of them like magically like flies up with leaves pulling them up. These characters and this idea of like these people with autumn powers is not in the final film at all. And it's in the teaser trailer that releases six months before the film. And like I'm like, what? (laughs) And apparently I I, I haven't seen the documentary because again I don't want to sit through five hours of the making of Frozen 2 of these people going like yeah it's great because you know it's not apparently they did the the big climax of Frozen 2 is the song Show Yourself and apparently they had the song written they're like this is really great but they didn't know who sang it they didn't know what the context was they're like this is a great song Uh, how are we going to use it and it's like a month before the movie comes out and it's like holy shit no no way this movie sucked <laughs> like and it's interesting to me because like to me those are like and i know i was saying like ah oh, it's content like it's like netflix but to me like that's a documentary <laughs> the sweatbox the documentary the pixar story is a document it is a piece of you know tempting fate in a sense i've already I've already taught i'm not, I'm not really being depressed anymore you know it's really great that i've had this long podcast recording before i'm about to call my parents and tell them all the news about my insurance because i'm going to be on the phone with them and they're going to be freaking out I'll be like guys i've already processed this you weren't you weren't picking up the phone when i called earlier so this has already been anyway mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> you should all watch the sweat box <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i get what you're saying about it's like this is all edited but it's like i'm I never expected anything better. <laughs> I think even in 2007, you know, if they're putting this on the the Wally DVD to celebrate Pixar being bought by Disney, of course they're not going to like shit on it. You know, they're gonna be like, yeah, Pixar is great. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I feel like I just filibustered. No, that was really good. And actually, that makes me think of something that I feel like I should say. Um, I'm gonna look up the name of the Frozen Two Doc as you say, just so I can pimp it later. But go on. Sure. 
I should say too, just in the interest of transparency, and because I don't know how much people like know about how we record our show, but our show is like very edited. Yes. And yeah, I just I don't know. I just after saying all that, I felt weird if I didn't say that our show was very edited. What you tell me like, there weren't random bubbles in our sorts of episode? <laughs> well, no, even like that. I mean, no. I will see. That's that's kind of like that's that's kind of like an obvious edit, but. Sometimes I have been like, you know, slightly moving things around so that dialogue sounds like more on top of each other than it has before, and that might that might be a sin. The title of the documentary, by the way, is "Into the Unknown: Cold Making Frozen 2. It's six episodes long. I want to um, ask you about that. I, hold on. I know I'm glad that that's out there in the world, but I wanted to ask you about that off mic. But now I'm asking you on mic. What do you think about me doing that? What? The way I edit things because. Sometimes we'll have a section of, so I cut out ums, usually, yeah. and I cut out other things, and then I'll cut out sections of conversation if we like get onto a topic and then we decide we don't want to have it in, and then I cut that out so it sounds like we're just jumping from topic to topic. Yeah. There's also something that I've been playing with a little bit. Some I've been taking out some pauses and f making them sound a little more like someone is interjecting over them, so it's like a topic sounds like it it jumps off as an interjection from another topic and i wanted to be transparent. i don't mind that i don't really know i listen back to all our episodes i haven't really noticed it so that means it's good you know what i mean yeah i don't know i just i think about that because i was taught i went on this like giant screed about like the honesty of a moment and especially like you can make brad bird sound funny and then i hear i am like well i also make our conversations a little more active than they actually are you know we sometimes have a lot of dead space, and I would like it to be like an entertaining listen. Like our ideas come very, like I think I think that's where it comes for me is an insecurity about how slowly I talk and how slowly we think of things to say. Well, that's so, why you, you you ask the listener, "Hey, I'm gonna talk really slow right now, so put me on two times speed for the next minute." <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah, well, you can do that too. I mean, that's great because it gives agency to the the listener. So I'm actually I have no beef with that. I just wanted to put that out there because I don't know. So I listen to podcasts that I like and I can definitely hear their edits. I don't know. I just wanted to, I felt, I felt kind of shitty going off about someone. I, st I still don't think you need to make Edward Snowden. <laughs> like, just tell me what he says. <laughs> I'm sorry. I get what you're saying, but I'm just someone clipping that out of context. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, you don't, you don't need to like put him into a hero narrative for me to care about Edward Snowden. I think that is a little like that's dangerous if if we just let that slide. But I just want to be clear with people. Hopefully we talk about serious things on this show. I also when I'm editing it and you know I'm also people are probably listening to this like that's not your biggest problem with editing, Mark. But like when I'm editing it, I'm I'm trying to make it like flow like an active conversation between people who are in the same room and have ideas very quickly which is not how we make the show the show is very much like we think about what we're saying and then like it comes out and then we digest it go over it and then what we then things come into back. the yeah yeah and then things come into the episode that way i don't know what do you think am i like a dishonest hack i don't know are you I don't think, okay, because the thing, okay, here's the thing. I don't want to be like, I don't know what you are, but my eyes basically what I just said to you. Um, but, but um, I think 
I mean, of course, obviously we edit. Well, Mark edits this show, but also this is at its heart, like most pot. Well, okay, there are two types of pot. No, <laughs> two types of um, But this is at its heart, you know, like a talk show podcast. Yes, we're talking about movies, but it's like you know we have a guest on, and well, hey, how are you doing in your life? You know, like hey, you got anything to advertise? You know, like in a way, we're we're Jimmy Fallon, right? Yeah. Um, except that I have a better laugh. I hope. Um, Wow. But it's definitely better than the laugh of the guy who was out on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Ew, that's a callback joke. That was not very smooth. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, I mean, I think everyone listening to the show, this show, um, and I'm going to call someone out now who I hope isn't listening. I don't think they will be. But I remember back when I was doing, and I'm not going to call Tyler. It's gonna, I'm, not, I'm talking about Wise with Ty and Dan right now. Mm. And when we would send the thing off to other editors one of them is very good and one of them is still that that one is still employed as my editor on my other podcast so if he's listening to this he's former guest joe schrimmer he's great mm-hmm. um never editor i, I had pod- <laughs> what oh sorry i've been cheating on you uh i was on the new 52 recently oh what you talk about um, v for vendetta i don't know oh, if it's cool. out yet or no it's yeah. not i mean they I follow, might cut that follow- episode so this will be awkward but, uh, well, I don't. They they have a long lead time. I've been asking to be back on to talk about um. <laughs> I want to talk about Dogman on there, which would be mm-hmm. very exciting because um, be there was cute. this thi- there was this thing that went viral this week. Sorry, I will get back to what I was talking about. There's this mm-hmm. thing that went viral this weekend that I saw, not about film, but it was like this was embarrassing. It was like a picture of like the manga wall at like a Barnes and Noble that was you know like so long and then a very comfortably small graphic novels thing. And I saw this quote tweet that was like, um, well hate this break it to you but there's no lincoln pierce there there's no um reina telgmeyer there and there's no dave pike pilkey there so and that's the biggest that's one of the biggest markets for graphic novels in the u.s and of course they're gonna be the children's section they're not gonna be the graphic novel section mm-hmm. um and i'm just like yeah yeah you go off because all three of those right i've read i've read something i haven't actually read any lincoln pierce but you know i work with kids so i've read ranga Telmeyer. actually have i told you that story about ranga Telmeyer? Telgmeier? No, I don't know who that is. So Reina, Reina Telgmeier. I'm trying to not butcher her name. Um, and I'm okay. So she writes graphic novels for children. Um, she's been writing them since 2010. Um, her first book is titled Smile, where it's about a kid who gets braces, basically. And they're all kind of autobiographical in some way. Smile is very blatantly so. So is Sisters. I've read her first. I've read Smile, Drama, Sisters, and I think I've read a bit of Guts, which is 2019. But since 2019, she's been writing. Um, basically adapting the graphic novels of um babysitters club and like producing that too because that's what writers do now is produce other like children's writers you know like they produce other writers like rick roydian dude does that too Mm -hmm. um and i had this moment where i felt very so i was reading smile which is whatever i mean it's good it's good you know like all these books are like they're written for girls um growing up and of course boys can read them too i I don't want to be gendered here but then I read mm-hmm. Drama, which is apparently always in the top 10 most banned books in the U.S. for children. Um, because it came out in 2012 and there's a gay character in it. And there was something in it that got... The ending of it really bothered me. But I also recognize it as 2012. It's like, this is probably very progressive for that time. But then I just kind of got... I don't know. Can I can I write about this children's book right now and the representation in it? Sure. <laughs> so plot of this book that you're never going to read unless you have kids of your own and you get it for them and it, i do think it's a good book until the end is 
I have the Wikipedia page open to remind me because I read this like a few months ago. Um, drama is about, and this was I initially told Joe I wanted to come on Ivor to talk about drama when I was still reading it, or this Dogman book I want to talk about. So I, I, after I finished, I was like, I want to go on and talk about Dogman. I don't want to read drama. Is drama is about a middle school girl who is in the drama department. She likes doing stage crew, um, and she has this crush. It's all you know, it's all boy crushes, but it's also like she's doing her own thing. And these um, twins move to town that are a year ahead of her. She's in seventh grade; they're in eighth grade. And she's got a crush on one of them, and the other one is gay, which is, you know, like, the big, like, holy shit, this is 2012, and this is a book that's written for middle schoolers and fifth graders, and there's a gay character in it, and it's a bestseller. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's just, like, you know, a normal, like, she's she's got a crush on someone else, too, and it's like, oh, whatever. And at the end, it's obvious that, like, okay, so the, the not-gay twin and she are going to get together, and it's going to be a nice ending for them. Or if they're not going to get together, then they're going to stay friends, but, you know, they're going to be very close friends. And then what got me really mad is, like, in the last 15 pages of this book, it reveals that the other twin is gay, too. And it just got me very upset <laughs> that it was just kind of... And I get that, like, obviously... Like, it's one of those things which, like, you know, it's the first thing of representation, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, like, very, like, cool. But then it's also, like, we've moved past this. But it just kind of got me mad that this thing, to me, the message that I was taking away from it as, like... A child reading this book is like, well, if your brother's gay, then they're great too. And you should just take, like, you shouldn't listen to the, because the gay brother's like, don't worry, my brother's straight. Like, he's totally into you. And it's like, I, that was my takeaway. is like, the, the only two gay characters in this book are the two people who are related to each other. And it just kind of got me mad <laughs> that that was, like, how it ended. <laughs> I get you. Yeah. But, again, for 2012... Very progressive, very cool, and the writing's very good too, and I like her other work, so I can't be... And obviously, again, like, this was, like, a groundbreaking novel for, um, representation, LGBTQ representation in 2012. So, and it's still getting banned a lot of places, which is ridiculous, but I'm mm-hmm. just like, ugh, it's a, it's a bummer that, like, I haven't read her later stuff, maybe she, maybe she gets it right later, um, but, but anyway, my point is she's one of the best-selling graphic novels for children, novels for children. Um, mm-hmm. And that's why I wanted to go talk about Dogman. Anyway, back to what I was saying about the editing. <laughs> um, the editor of um, Dog... Um, Joe Schwimmer. Great editor. Mm. Our other editor we had, I'd always have to listen back to our shows. Because it would be literally like, I'd be like, oh, cut this bit out. Okay? And I'd be like, Cut for, like they would even ask them, give me a timestamp on your recording when you said you need the cuts. I'd be like, okay, here. I'd give them the timestamp. They would literally only cut out sometimes me saying, cut this out. And then go to what I said to cut out. And I'd be like, what the heck? <laughs> like, wow. what exactly do you want? Like, eventually, like, we want a beginning timestamp and an end timestamp of what to cut. And it's like, are you kidding me? Like, you don't even listen back to the show then. Like, you're, you're like, you're like, I'm paying you to do this. And I granted, they they give me a very good rate because it was like, you know, your beginner podcaster and they were being nice to me. But it's also like, if you're going to give me a, like, I'm going to pay more if it means that you're going to actually edit it the way I want you to. And, and then eventually, you know, they up there. So like, you're not beginners anymore. They have to write. So I'm like, okay, bye. I'm going to switch out then. I don't know. That's my, you know, I everything's think, edited. Yeah. Well, everything's edited. And I think that there's, I don't know. It's just, just to be clear, this is, this is not us live. Yeah. And the process is not like a live talk show. It is like we come on and riff for however however long, and then we mold that into a series of arguments and discussions and joke sessions. 
and I, I think hopefully in the end it I think it represents what we would like to say if we were fast I mean you're a fast talker I'm not a fast talker I think hopefully it represents what we would like to put out into the world about what we think about Pixar and about how yes. we relate to each other too so that's the end goal and I think if we were to if we were to just release like the unedited audio that would not be a good representation of like what we think about Pixar overall that would that would be like you before you watch Goodfellas be like when I watch Pavarotti and go like man that guy is bril- brilliant but talented no sorry brilliant mm. but terrible and then I read his Wikipedia page and I'm like oh that made him look good and I go like I hate you Pavarotti hate you i, I also think it's always Pavarotti funny literature with, he's I also, an interesting guy i also always just find it i can't think of a specific documentary like this novel only is kind of like it but i guess i would have to like look like back at the you know because i've said i've been following the documentary noms for a bit i guess i could just open the wikipedia page for like best documentary that there's almost always like a documentary that's nominated where it's like oh shit that's so fascinating and then you read about it afterwards and you go like they completely ignored the actually interesting part of i clicked documentary short by accident by some for some reason um <laughs> and you're like ah, oh, damn that's so interesting and it's like oh actually they told you absolutely fucking nothing about them and it's terrible you know we i think we i think we gotta wrap it up yeah that's fine unfortunately but this was this was a i don't know why i'm talking at you like you're a guest and i'm like this was a good well because i had a mental breakdown in like the first 20 minutes on this i I was like i just want to have kids i have no money (laughs) all these people are dead and all 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 the joy that they look forward to in this documentary never comes true steve Steve jobs dies three years after this all right um what do you want to give this okay. film? I had one thing, and this is this is what I'll give it. Don't worry. But I had one thing this entire talk I was thinking about that I never mentioned. But you know how it's like all like this joyous celebration of Pixar, and I think about this because this is true in like any Disney documentary you watch. BTS is that it lacks an interview, and it makes sense because he's enemy of the company right now. All of these lacked interviews with Jeffrey Katzenberger. Which mm-hmm. is such a huge part of these stories, always, because they all. Uh, you ever listen to people involved at Disney in the early '90s? Everything bad they blame on Jeffrey Katzenberg, and he never gives. And I, I he's a, by all accounts, he's an asshole. Like he, he made Queedy, right? Like, uh, <laughs> that, that explains itself. Um, and then launched it like the week of a global pandemic, which is. So, <laughs> I mean, I, I hate to say like. Like he should have held on to because it it's not like you can really hold on to something that big. But epic bad timing for something that was sold on videos you can watch while you're in line at the grocery in line places. Mm-hmm. But I th- I think I would want a follow up to this. That I I do think something like the sweatbox or even into the unknown making Frozen two would be really fascinating because I remember. I remember initially they announced during the pandemic that they were going to make a documentary a la Frozen 2 for Soul. Where I think that is something I would have loved to see. Because one, I think Soul's a great movie. And I think the idea of covering exactly what happened when, you know, the movie was supposed to come out in June. And then the pandemic hit. And, you know, the artist shifted to working at home, which is this whole adjusted thing that you can do a documentary on in and of itself. And then it becomes a discussion of how do we release this film? And then, you know, they land on Disney+. 
And I mm-hmm. think that whole thing would have been interesting. But ultimately what I want is... I do think there is merit in having a documentary about the making of these movies. And I think yeah. there's merit... The thing is, I think it should be episodic on Disney+. Plus. I think each movie should get its own episode. In a way, I don't think it should be on Disney+. Plus. Because Disney Plus isn't going to get Katzenberg could give. I would love to hear Katzenberg give a defense of his Black Friday cut, you know? Even though he hated it. But he's he's the one who's always blamed for it. So I'd like to hear you see him ask. Like, why'd you... Like, so what pushed you to make them go that way? Like, because I think also... I don't want to... Like, again, he just made Queeby. So he's probably still an asshole. But I'm sure, like, there's some, like, self-reflection there. Of, like, yeah, they clearly did well. And I I did well, too. You know, like, he'll be like, well, you know, I went on to do the answer tracks. So, you know, I made some good movies, too. But I'm sure, like, at this point, he's got to be willing to admit some faults. And I'd be curious mm-hmm. to see his take on those things. And I'd like to see, in general, this story now, now that Steve Jobs is gone, now that we've gone to the era of Pixar where they no longer mean original things necessarily because they've made so many sequels. And I think that a critical documentary looking at this from a non-biased filmmaker who's given free reign to interview whoever they want would be good. And I think you can start with Toy Story 1 and just go... I, I, I actually do think the first 40 minutes of this documentary are very good. So it's like, other than me like going into existential crisis. But yeah, I don't want a sequel or a remake, but I would like a series about the history of Disney and Pixar animation with Katzenberg's perception edited in. And I want I don't want archive clips. I want him interviewed today. I want an all companies interview of like this is you finally hashing it out, giving your side of the Disney Renaissance where you're an asshole, but the movie still turned out you know what I mean? Like the movie still turned out to be classic. Because the fact is once he left Disney you know when he left Disney? He left Disney in like ninety six I don't have the exact time. But he left Disney mm-hmm. After Lion King, after Beauty and the Beast, after Aladdin. So clearly when he was there at Disney, the movie still turned out good. <laughs> so, and I'm sure he wants to take full credit for it, but I'm sure there's, you know, there's all these different forms. Anyway, I, I said what I want. I want a documentary that actually has Katzenberg's perception on it. You said a lot. That was, that's very good. <laughs> I mean, and I mean that in a compliment way. That's, that's a very interesting idea. I have this uh, vision of him being like, interviewed by Errol Morris and the documentary is called The Hill and it's about like the making of Ants versus Bugs Life coming out I think I mean you really that was a very good thing to say I think what I'm personally most curious about is Brad Bird's footage from his first day at Pixar which they cut to occasionally during Mm -hmm. the documentary but that's what I would give it and I'm kind of stealing your idea, but like, well, really, I, want the, I just want that going, unedited footage. Well, we want unedited footage. I want the Black Friday reel that's two hours long. I want to <laughs> see how. I want. I want to see it. At this point, it it is a historical importance that we see that full reel. It is one of the most important movies ever made. At least, most important anime movies ever made. We need to see how bad it could have gone. Mm-hmm. Mark, yeah. I just want to say, I was kind of hoping you'd say. Well, I don't want to give it, so I give Danny um, his insurance rates somehow stay Oh, yeah. I want to help Danny with his insurance. Every, uh, everyone pray for him. I have to call them tomorrow, but I, I, I don't know when those will take effect. I'm really curious. But, I, I don't know. Yeah, I know you but, don't know. Sorry. No, 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 whatever. It's all good. What are we doing next time? 
So next time we got, you know, a couple shorts, as we do. And one of them is Your Friend the Rat, which is the educational short film that's on the Ratatouille Blu-ray. And then we have a short film that personally, I'm just going to say it, we could do a whole episode on just this short film. And you know you said in the past that like, it's, like, it's hard to do an episode on short film. But this is a, in my opinion, off memory, this is one of Pixar's like top three shorts they ever did. And that's Presto. Which is directed oh. by Doug Sweetland, who I kept talking about in this episode. as He's the yeah. guy we keep cutting back to in the documentary, who's really cool. Um, yeah. But yeah, we'll be talking about Your Friend the Rat and Presto next time. So be sure to be here. Thank you so much. <laughs> you thanking me for this is our show. What? No, I'm just thanking everyone. <laughs> you said it like, ah, yes. the ambiguity of Pray audio. for me, audience. Pray. <laughs> <laughs> Please. Looking for the Ocean is produced by Mark Young and Danny Vincent. Our original artwork was done by Sarah Knopf, and each episode is edited by me. If you'd like to be notified about new episodes, you can find us on Facebook at Looking for the Ocean of Pixar Journey, on Twitter at Pixar Journey, on Instagram at Looking for the Ocean Pod, and on our website, lookingfortheoceanpixar.podbean.com. If you want to know what I'm up to or find me on social media, you can head over to markyoungperformer.com. And if you'd like to see all my takes on all the movies, you can find me on Letterboxd at Blankman's. If you'd like to hear me on another podcast, I also have The Snub Club, a podcast about film history. We'll see you next time. See you next time. This is a really great episode for us taking our clips out of context. Spider-Man's here to beat those guys up.